because I think people confuse this concept with trolling, with going on and, and picking fights and being a jerk. That is not what I'm saying. First of all, I think that hurts the world. And second of all, I think it backfires a lot. Michael F. Shine has made a name for himself for taking on the biggest names in the online world, Gary Vaynerchuk, Simon Sinek, and other thought leaders. But he's not just a writer with a literary hit list. Michael is the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. He wrote the book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. And to celebrate our big 50th episode milestone here at the Global Phenomenon Podcast, we're happy to present you with five of Michael's hype strategies that nobody else is using in the online world, and you can start using to create a movement out of your message in your online coaching business. We had to cut the interview down for length for the podcast, but if you'd like to hear how Michael got Gary V to record an angry video about him, or how he was able to get to help a millionaire who had it all, and many more specific examples of how to use his hype techniques in the online coaching world, get the full interview by going to theglobalphenomenon.com slash uncut and get access to our uncut interview vault. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts while well, you're wondering how you can also be interviewed on this podcast about your journey, stay through to the end and I'll tell you how to apply to be interviewed by me right here on the podcast. Also, stay tuned for an important announcement about the podcast. And don't forget to head over to the review section, submit a five-star review and say something nice. It really helps support the show. And thanks. Here's my interview with Microfame Media founder, Michael F. Shine. This is The Global Phenomenon with Ina Coveney, the podcast where the self-made teach you to stop waiting to be discovered and prepare to be found. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our 50th episode celebration. And I have Michael F. Shine joining us today. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Hey there, Ina. How are you? Doing great. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you are about to teach us how to be micro celebrities in our niche. And I can't wait. So tell us uh, who you are and what you've been up to lately. Sure. So again, my name is Michael F. Shine. I am the president and founder of Microfame Media. We are, for lack of a better term, and we'll see why I'm saying this, a marketing agency, and we work with idea-driven businesses and some individuals to help them become the most well-known figure in their niche. I am also most recently the author of The Hype Handbook, which was just released with McGraw-Hill on January 12th, so I'm very excited about that. Um, and the subtitle kind of explains it all. It's 12 indispensable success secrets from the world's greatest propagandists, self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary breakers. And if you see me looking away from the camera, if you're uh, watching this, that's because it's such a long subtitle that I have to look down to uh, remember the order. <laughs> 
that sounds like I, I'm going to go and get that book right now because that's something that has I've actually thought about. It's like, how can we use all of the techniques that the, the for lack of a better word, the most successful propagandists have used, but how can we use those skills for good, right? It seems exactly. like it's the, is the evil that has gotten a handle on how to get you to do evil things. How do we turn that around? How do yeah. we take that kind of marketing prowess and turn it into doing good in the world, right? So uh, it sounds like a book that I, I need to go and get right now. And we'll put the link in the description for everybody. All right. Thank you. Yeah, so, that was my that was my intention to do exactly what you just described. I it's something I have thought about in the past. Like, man, if only the best people in the world could get everybody else as riled up. Um, I'm actually really curious. How did the idea for the book come up? So, and I'll try to tell the short version of this story. It's 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 a winding story. It really has its roots in my earliest days as 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 an entrepreneur, um, I worked, I had always wanted to be in the arts. I never wanted to be involved in business, ironically, because now I really like business. Mm -hmm. However, uh, you know, when I first left college, I was in a band, uh, it was kind of a punk band. And we used to do all kinds of antics to get attention, maybe to compensate for talent. I don't know, but <laughs> we, we, uh, I would dress like a nun and we would put offensive signs up and we got ourselves on Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would get booed off. And as a result, we got a lot of attention. I mean, we used to sell out a, a popular club called Arlene's Grocery a lot. We got a lot of press, but you know, it's very hard to become a, a literal rock star. So it didn't work out. Um, I got a corporate job and over the years lost my soul a little bit and, and became kind of straight laced. And so when I went on my own, I decided, <clears throat> excuse me, I was going to become a business writer because I saw opportunity there. And I figured because I was a good writer, people would pay me for my skills. And that didn't work. I uh, almost burned through a year's worth of savings. It was very terrifying. And I had read, I was reading every sales and marketing book that was out there. I was a real student, but I, I had just gotten in this corporate mindset of, of doing things in this sort of straight laced way that none of it worked for me. I, I was very ineffective. And then at wit's end, I kind of thought back to my past and I was like, you know, I used to be this admirer of all these mischief makers. I, I mean, early rock managers and hip hop managers, but, you know, pranksters, even propaganda artists. I, I was interested in cults. And we used to apply some of that to, to our band, but I had totally forgotten that. So I said, okay, is it possible for me to ethically apply some of these ideas to my own business or do I have to be a con artist? Because I didn't want to do that. I didn't leave right. my job to be a scumbag. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I started to use um, those tactics and we can talk about how um, with some moral ground rules, ethical ground rules. And it started to work. I started to do well and it turned into an agency. So when I started to see even especially in the last few years, the last five years or so, people using these tactics to sort of advance what I don't consider positive agendas and people falling into it. It just occurred to me that it, it was almost my moral imperative to sort of codify these ideas that some of the negative players come to more easily and put them in the hands of people doing good businesses and good projects so they they can have an have a competitive advantage because the bad guys don't need it. I mean, they tend to get it naturally. So that was how the book idea came about. 
I don't even call it marketing. I call it hype because to me, marketing is, it's too easily confused with like, let me figure out if I should use click funnels or if I should use Aweber, you know, it's this people confuse the idea that marketing should be about attracting attention and getting people to buy from you and getting people emotional. They, they focus on the tactics. So I wanted to use the word hype, which I just consider, even though it has negative connotations, getting a large number of people emotional so that they'll take an action on your behalf. So mm -hmm. in that book, I looked at all of these different people who did these things and sort of boiled it into 12 tactics. The first tactic and the most important tactic without which any of the rest work is called make war, not love. It's that people are much more attracted to when you position yourself against something than when you talk about what you're for. So that doesn't have to be against a person. It can be against an idea. But, you know, as, a, as someone who owns a, an agency, a lot of people will come to me and I'll say, like, tell me about your business. And they'll be like, our, you know, our SaaS software is the most, you know, integrate, highly integrated, quickest, you know, blah, blah, blah. They'll talk about how great their stuff is. And the idea is what's your point of view? In other words, do you have a point of view where you're adding to the conversation, but saying something new? And I think the best way to figure that out is instead of talking about all the great stuff that your product or service does, think about what's a point of view, a sacred cow, a, a bit of gospel in my field that everyone just accepts without question that I really felt was wrong or, or, or thought might be wrong for a very long time, but was scared to say so yeah. and try saying so. And I can give you some examples of how this is used in the business world, but, and sometimes it's more subtle than what I did. I just went all out. That's not what I'm saying to do, Right. but, but taking strong stands and having a point of view will probably do more for you in attracting attention and, and getting people to bond with you than anything else you can do. And with that, you have started on our top five things that you should be keeping in mind when you are going for becoming a micro celebrity in your niche, make war, not love. This is actually something that I learned from one of my coaches, uh, Ron Reich over the past couple of years It's like, you need to have an enemy. And whenever yeah. he would talk about that, people, uh, you know, us online coaches in the audience were like, but we don't, we don't want to come off as going against people or, or bad mouthing anybody or, and so it's a, it's a concept that is kind of hard to use and turn it into a positive. Um, so I would love for you to give us another example that kind of speaks to that fear that like, oh, well, that may work for Michael, but it's not what I'm going to do. Can you give us another example that will help us use it for good? Yeah. And in fact, I think this is a great point because I think people confuse this concept with trolling. Yeah. With going on and, and picking fights and being a jerk. That is not what I'm saying. First of all, I think that hurts the world. And second of all, I think it backfires a lot. I mean, I never made fun of Gary Vaynerchuk's looks, his voice, his attitude, <laughs> nothing. I mean, it, and nor would I. Right. It wasn't about that. But yeah, a, a great example is Basecamp. So mm -hmm. Basecamp is a, for those of you who don't know, it's a project management. Software. Yeah, we, we so, used to use it in corporate, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, pretty pretty brass tack stuff has the potential to be pretty boring, but important. 
But the thing about Basecamp is that unlike almost any project management software that came before it, it's stripped down and simple. So it, it only really does about six things. It, it, it you know, and, and so the, the founders of the company could have just said, we have a very simple, easy to use project management software. And that's nice. That might've helped. That's not what they did. They created an entire worldview in books like Rework in a very popular blog that basically said that workaholism and ultra complexity were killing business. Mm -hmm. So they would say things like fire your workaholics because they're taking on unnecessary work. That's why they work so hard and they're not efficient. They would say things like, just because your client asks you to do something and demands it be done, you can say no. Because what would typically happen in the project management development world is a client would say, I absolutely need this software to do X, Y, and Z. And they would rush around to, to do it, the, 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 the developer, and then they would add it to every subsequent version. And before you knew it, you had a software that did 652 things and it was almost impossible to use for mm -hmm. the, you needed a specialist to, to do it. And it, it, it really, it created a movement because there were a lot of people that even though they were being told to work around the clock and, and under promise and what do they say? Under promise and over deliver. And they just kind of say that as gospel. Now here were these two guys saying, listen, great work does not equal running around like a chicken without a head and doing everything everyone asks you to do. And as a result, that, that software has like a cult following. When, when people talk about Basecamp and it's project management software, they're like, it's not like, oh, I use Basecamp. It's like, I use Basecamp. I totally believe in the Basecamp method, right? So, yeah. so that's, I think, a good example. So it doesn't have to be controversial or obnoxious. It has to be courageous. Right. I, I totally get it. It's, I love how you put it. It's creating a universe that people prefer other what, over what exists right now, but you have to create it right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People are just falling into micro universes that different marketing teams have come up for you, right? right? Different marketing teams have put those words in your mouth. They have given you the ability to say those things. So it's a matter of being courageous in creating a different world so that people want to join it. And that requires you saying exactly what you stand for and it can't be the same as everybody else. And, and if you don't have something in your industry that you disagree with, you should probably not be in business. I, I know that sounds harsh, but if the only reason that you're self-employed is because you want to be self-employed, you're probably not going to survive. Yeah, I love it. Uh, this is great. Why don't we jump to point number two of five of becoming a micro celebrity? We got number one, make war, not love. What is number two, Michael? So the second piece of being a micro celebrity, and it's, it's um, no accident that these are five of the 12 hype strategies because they're one and the same as far as I'm concerned. Um, I call it build a secret society, or sometimes I call it the piggybacking method. So what the best hype artists do, and I say hype artists is a very positive thing. Those are the people who drive a lot of attention in a certain space to become well-known. Mm -hmm. 
they always make it look like their success is completely grassroots. Like people are just, they don't lie, but, but it just kind of this perception that they're just getting all these followers and fans and buzz in the media. But what they almost always do at the same time, even usually more so is they've spent a long time fostering very deep connections with the most influential people in their niche. And when I say influencers, I don't mean like teenagers who play (laughs) Minecraft. I I mean, just very powerful people who, if they say something, 10,000 people will will do it. And behind the scenes, they kind of create what they used to call an old boys network, but it can now be an old girls network or whatever. Old old people's network. (laughs) Old people's, old folks network. (laughs) You know, they'll, 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 so, I mean, I'll give you a great example of this from the business world. So, Tucker Max was this guy pretty much known. He wrote a book called, 20 years ago now, I think, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And it was just a misogynistic type book about how he just hooked up with girls and got drunk. And it sold like millions of copies. And, you know, eventually he got married and had a kid and he didn't want to be known for that anymore. But he still wanted to be a millionaire. And he was a very savvy guy, but he had spent all this time building really strong relationships. So Ryan Holiday was sort of his protege. Um, And then Ryan Holiday became a superstar. He's friends with James Altucher. He came up with uh, Tim Ferriss. they, They all came up together and he spent a lot of time nurturing these relationships. So he created a business that at the time was called Book in a Box. I think now it's called Scribe Media. I, I might be getting that wrong. But um, it, it's essentially, it was like sort of a ghostwriting service on steroids. It almost doesn't matter what it is. And he could have sat there and done Facebook ads and this and that. And he did all of that eventually. But what he did was he called James Altucher, Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, all these people with massive followings and said, listen, talk up my product. And he was on all of their podcasts. They all talked up and he did like, I don't know, a million in revenue in a month or something like that. So that's a perfect example of how you need to find those human pressure points and nurture them. And there are ways to do that. So for someone who's listening, who may not have Tim Ferriss on speed dial, right? What are some ways that people who are starting out can take advantage of this kind of influence that they're seeking? It's a great point because one of the biggest sort of pushbacks that people say against even becoming an entrepreneur or, or when they're sort of feeling sorry for themselves, they they'll say, I don't know people, Mm. you know, things only work when people know people. And I, I didn't know people there. The internet makes it very simple to know people, not easy, but simple. It takes work. So for example, I'll give you a few tactics, very hard and fast tactics. If you're on social media, let's say Twitter to, to just use an easy example, instead of trying to build this million person following, instead sit back and monitor people that you admire and want to know. And every once in a while, in the midst of all their business promotion, they'll let something human slip. A band they like, a sports team they're into, a coffee shop they go to, and talk to them about that. Because even powerful people are human. So, I mean, there's this guy, Brian Clark, who owns Copyblogger, which is a huge deal in the content marketing world. And he's constantly talking about business stuff, content stuff. 
But once in a while, as I mentioned a few times, I like punk music and, and, you know, but I'm a middle-aged guy that music's old. So a lot of people who like punk music were creative kids who tried to be cool through punk music and then became rich because they were creative, right? Because it's old already. So I would once in a while, I would see like Brian Clark would mention a band that was like an underground band from when I was young. And I'd say, that's weird, you know? And then he had Henry Rollins speak at one of his conferences and that's the singer of black flag right that's not your typical like business speaker so i was like there's something here you know so i talked to him about that and of course he responded to me and we started trading messages and now we know each other so so that's the first thing the second thing is use a you know come in as a buyer not a seller so what i mean by that is let's say you start a podcast or a blog or a piece of digital media, something that I've done, like we, we had a client who um, we, we created a podcast for her, very cheap and easy, very simple to do. And the thing wasn't even live yet. And she wanted to meet really prominent media figures. So we wrote a number of people, one of whom was Danielle Feinberg, who was the director of photography at Pixar, like the main person behind the lighting for all your favorite Pixar movies. She's a TED speaker, not TEDx, TED. And we wrote her and we said, hey, you know, Ms. Feinberg, um, we're creating, you know, we're, we're profiling on our podcast, the top 20 new media minds of today. And you're on the short list. Would you like to be on the show? Now, Reddit, this podcast at this time had zero listeners because it didn't exist yet. She responded to us within two hours and said, oh, that's such an honor. I'm never recognized in that way. And we had her on the show. Now, as a result, the podcast is very popular now. And this client achieved all their goals. So it's a function of what is something that you can give up pretty easily that's valuable to them, to someone else. Yeah. And everyone's got something. You know, I can give you 50 examples on this, but you just have to be creative. So I'm going to say that back to you because actually you're, you're touching on things that I have heard uh, people who are big in publicity say all the time, right? Which is number one, yeah, you're not afraid to pitch. Number two, you find common can, ground. Can I, can, I inter- can I interrupt that though? Yeah. When people say that, don't be afraid to pitch, people make a mistake because they, they hear that and they get up all their courage and they say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pitch. And then they email a hundred people and they say, um, you know, John Smith Consulting Service is the most cutting edge consulting service of the last five years. And an ex, it would be a, I would love to have it featured in your magazine. And then they right. wonder why they didn't hear back because right. no, that's not news. No one wants to cover your thing. It's not about pitching. It's again, it's about don't be afraid to approach someone with something you can do to help them. Yeah. That you, that they may not be able to do, even though they're rich and famous. It's, it's just such an important distinction because people get this wrong all the time. Yeah. Thank you. So you are not pitching. We are establishing a relationship. We're establishing a, a connection. We're referring to something that they know about, or they like that we like, we know about they, and we're offering a service. We're doing something for them that maybe they don't get a lot. Maybe they don't right. hear a lot. Um, you know, one of those people was Selena Sue. She's big in the publicity space. And yeah, she said one great. of the, one of yeah. the big things that she did was approach Ramit Sethi and say, Hey, like, 
here are some things about publicity that I can like help you with or a, a few little pieces of feedback. And Ramit said, it's like, oh, those are actually really well thought out pieces of feedback. Can we do more stuff together? And she just kind of went off from there. So offering- and she does that all the time. I happen to know her and she comes across as very- she, she, she's not loud and outspoken and all of this stuff, but she always finds that thing that you need at the exact right moment. And as a result, she's very, very successful. Yeah. And that's an, that's an art yeah. to find that kind of thing, especially when we're starting, we're like, what do I have to offer? Think about it. Okay. We got number one, make war, not love. Number two, build a secret society. Number three, what is it, Michael? It is this is everyone's favorite title. Give the babies their milk before you give them meat. So, sounds like a solid tip. Let's go to number four. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is, so what is this milk before meat? So that's actually a phrase that comes from religion. A lot of religions talk about that. What it basically means is that if you have some, every religion is wacky when you first hear about it. Like a lot of the religions that we accept, it's because we're used to them. Right. But they're all weird if you think about it. And new religions are very weird and most mm -hmm. of them fail. So if you were to just come up to someone in the street and say, you know, um, there are these aliens that live on the lip of a volcano. And a, a long time ago, they um, were spewed out of the volcano and implanted themselves in every human being on Earth's head. And that's why we have negative thoughts. But you can dispel them using this secret technology you might call the insane or the, the mental hospital to uh, take care of them. But that's Scientology. That's what Scientologists believe. Now, Scientologists will never tell you that when you first meet them. If they're trying to recruit you, they will say, you know, um, I have this really interesting, I read this book called Dianetics, and it really teaches you how to sort of be a positive thinker so that you can get what you want out of life. And then you go to the place and it doesn't even look like, like, kooky it's 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 I don't mean to call Scientology kooky although it is but <laughs> um but it helps don't mean a lot to, of, but there it is yeah. you know but but all religions look kooky right but you know the, the, their centers they have this technology called an e-meter and it, it's kind of like the stuff we see at business coaching seminars it's it's mm -hmm. very like the these various steps and programs and it's very very and it's it's we're American especially as Americans we have this like self-help culture. So it looks very yeah. familiar and it makes sense. And slowly but surely they start introducing the other stuff. And before you know it, you're believing in aliens and volcanoes and Genu <laughs> and all of this stuff. If it, and, and, you know, so just like you don't give a baby a steak when they're first born. So there are scientific reasons for this. Human beings hate big changes. And they hate things that are radically unfamiliar to what they're used to. So you have, if you have an idea or system or process or whatever product that is, you know, that is truly unusual, that's helpful and great, but hard to accept, you need to be as small C conservative in the way you present it at in the beginning as possible. Wrap it in familiar language, introduce it in stages, be ease them into it. That's very, very important. Okay. So give babies their milk before you give them meat. Introduce radical ideas with more familiar concepts and kind of get them there. Get, get a bunch of yeses before right. you introduce something that they may not say yes to in the first step. What is number four? Be a trickster until it no longer serves you. So this is the, when I talk about hype, 
this is what most people think of. They think of pranks and mischief and craziness. They think of rock managers getting their getting you know their stars to you know pretend to bite the heads off of bats and and P.T. Barnum and this sort of stuff. Being mischievous, even in an overt way, can be very useful, even in business, when you don't have resources. When you have no other ways to get attention, creating theater and mischief and drama is very effective. But what the most effective micro-celebrities, hype artists, whatever you want to call them, do, is they, they do that and they know when to shift. Like Ryan Holiday, who's a, a wonderful marketer, he was a like a professional prankster. He he did American apparels marketing and he advertised a clothing company by having a porn star with nothing but socks. I mean, just different things like this. But we don't think of him that way. We think of him, he writes books about stoic philosophy and he's very sober-minded because he knew exactly when to start shifting. When he became part of the establishment, he shed that prankster, trickster um, shell. Otherwise, you become Dennis Rodman, you know, where, where you're just you're 55 years old and you're you still have yellow hair and are going to North Korea for attention. What would be a good example of being a good trickster? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like to use examples from rock and roll because. I think sometimes when people think about being a trickster, being a hype artist, they think it's about negativity. And I think when done right, it can add a lot of color to life. Mm -hmm. As long as you're not hurting anyone, it can actually make life more fun. So, I mean, there's a great example, um, Alice Cooper, the, the, which was the band they were, people think of Alice Cooper as the guy, the singer, but that was actually the name of the, the band. Yeah. And their manager was a guy named Shep Gordon and he didn't even like their music. So he made sure they were always very theatrical. So they would do, they were like the first shock rocker. They would do onstage decapitations. They would do you know, all of this crazy stuff, right? So they got popular through that in the US, but in England, they weren't really sticking. And they had a show at Wembley Arena And like two weeks before the show, they had only sold 500 tickets. So it was going to be a disaster. So Shep Gordon got a picture taken of Alice Cooper, the singer, naked on a billboard. A lot of naked people on billboards, but <laughs> naked on a billboard with, with a boa constrictor, like hiding his private area. He put it like life size or bigger than life size, billboard size on the back of a truck. And he had the truck drive through Piccadilly Circus, which is the most trafficked area of London during rush hour. And he paid the guy off to make sure the truck broke down at rush hour. So now in the middle of the day, there's this naked picture of Alice Cooper um, in the middle of everything. And Parliament went crazy. They were saying ban them from the country. But this actually goes back to step one because this stuff is, is integrated he knew that teenagers wanted to find themselves against their parents. Mm -hmm. So he knew that anything he could do to get parents to hate this band would make the band popular. Wow. And they sold out Wembley Arena and they became like one of the biggest acts of the 70s in England. So, but that was fun. I mean, we don't tell that story and say, what a horrible person. He ruined people's work day. I mean, that's rock <laughs> lore. That's, that's fun. That adds color to the world. We're happy there are stories like that. Yeah. 
All right, that is the Beatrixster. Now we're on to the final point, point number five of becoming a micro celebrity. What do you have, Michael? So fetishize work. Uh, this was the thing I picked a fight with Gary Vee about, but I started to dig into to what he was doing because he's such a good marketer. I doubt he does this on purpose, but he's just inherently a hype artist. Mm -hmm. So I, I wondered why Gary Vaynerchuk cared about spending so much of his time screaming at people to work hard. Because there are very few entrepreneurs who are like, yeah, I think I'm going to work three hours today, right? right. I mean, that's <laughs> really not the, the, the stand. So why was he spending 80% of his time doing this? And I started to look into cults. And almost to a one, what religious cults do is they get people to work like dogs on their behalf. And they kind of make it seem like they're going to get some kind of spiritual salvation from it. So there was this cult leader many years ago named Gurdjieff, who some people still like. He is this like new age kind of guy. And you would regularly come to his compound and there would be like Hollywood celebrities digging holes to nowhere. Or the Moonies, they, they work 65 hours a day on behalf of the cult. And the reason this works so well is that if you're working really hard on behalf of a common cause, and then someone tells you, you know, let me give you evidence why this thing isn't so great. There's cognitive dissonance. Our brain doesn't like to hold two thoughts that are contradictory at the same time, especially if we previously decided on one of them. So you'll, you'll sort of double your commitment to the thing because it, it, it makes people feel really unpleasant if they think they spent a lot of time working on behalf of a lost cause on something that was useless. So working on behalf of something bonds you to them. At the same time, it, it, it you can get free work done like Tom Sawyer with his white fence. So I'll give you, um, Again, I always use the extreme example, but I can give you an example of, of how to use this in a much more toned down way. I, I so, like hearing both because I like yeah. hearing like, like what worked, like what was the inception of it, and then kind of like bringing it down to earth a little bit. Tell me both. Well, Tell me the big one first. Well, the, the big one is, is what I just said. I mean, cult leaders trying, making people saying right. you're going to get spiritual deliverance by digging holes for 19 hours yeah. in the ground. I mean, that's, that's the extreme right, one. Right, right, Getting right. Hollywood celebrities who don't even get their own drinks to, you know, work in a field. Right. Um, no, but this can actually be done extremely ethically as well. So, you know, I think about marketing agencies and their business model versus like consultants and coaches of a certain type, the really successful ones. So in a marketing agency, even though you can do really well, it's a hard business and the margins are low because every time, because you're expected to do the marketing work for the client, for them, do the work. So what that does is that creates a dynamic where you're being paid and you need to get this result. And if you get a result, it's why didn't you do more, right? Because you're the one doing the work. And, and that's fair. People are paying good money. But what happens is you have to continually hire new staff. You have to continually manage clients. And that's fine. There's a lot of benefits to that. However, it's challenging. And then I went to this thing called Strategic Coach a number of years ago. And it was recommended to me by the guy I mentioned before, the 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 gentleman who owns the half billion dollar company. He said, you've got to do this thing. 
And I would recommend it wholeheartedly to anybody who is at a point where they want to you know, build systems for their business. It was great. It was really useful. However, I paid a lot of money. I paid $10,000 for, for a year, which was a lot of money because you go to four classes throughout the whole year. You fly to Chicago and you do eight hours, eight an eight hour class, four times a year. There are some supplementary phone calls, but they're not really the crux of the thing. I stopped doing them. Not only that, there are pre-printed information tools that you use that you customize while you're there. So I would do all the work because I, it was a lot of money for me, but I would, I would go back every three months and, and I would hear people saying things like, you know, oh, to the, to the coach, Mary, I'm so sorry. I really didn't work hard enough this time. I implemented the tools in the beginning, but not at the end. And she would say, oh, progress, not perfection. So it, it occurred to me, I'm like, wow, there's a dynamic here where you're supposed to do all the work. And these people are apologizing that they didn't get results because they didn't work hard enough. And in my world, you can, people like, your worst clients will like not show up to three interviews you set up and then complain that they're not famous. And I'm like, right. this is really psychologically interesting. So if you can create a dynamic or a business model where you're providing value, but the bulk of the implementation is on your clients yeah. and you make it very clear subtly but clearly that if they don't get results the fault is theirs because they didn't work hard enough they will pay you more money and be more appreciative than if you do the work for them it is crazy so I guess if anybody all my online coaches who are listening just take this as a lesson that it's what people say is you teach others how to treat you right right so you yeah. gotta set that up in a way that you're gonna feel good about it you don't we don't want to be the the run ourselves to the ground for a client because we forgot to kind of set that boundary, but we're always so, such people pleasers. They're like, no, whatever my client wants, I'm going to give to them. It's like, it doesn't have to be that way. And you don't have to be evil, right? I think what makes it easier to do, because I'm a people pleaser too, what makes it easier? If, if when you say to yourself, I need to set the boundary so that I have my own sanity, mm -hmm. we're such driven people that that's easy to forget about very quickly because you want to do a good job. But when you say, I'm actually going to be more persuasive and sell more of my stuff to these people while making them do the work instead of me, that's a pretty good incentive, you know, to set those boundaries. Right, right. Okay, so let's recap here. Our five top pieces of advice from Michael F. Shine on how to become a micro celebrity in your niche. Number one, make war, not love. Number two, build a secret society. Number three, give the babies their milk before you give them meat. Number four, be a trickster until it no longer serves you, know when to stop. And number five, fetishize work. Okay, Michael, this has been incredible. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, are there any parting words, any pieces of advice that you can give us, everybody who's listening about getting themselves out there? I guess I would just say that it is really my fervent wish that more people embrace with pleasure 
the idea of hyping themselves up because I see all these people selling garbage who have no compunction about using group psychology and they just tend to take to it more easily. And I see people creating such great services, books, businesses, artwork, causes who can't get people to pay attention because they feel it's beneath them. I just hope people change that dynamic because we need all of you great people bringing attention to yourselves. And there is a way to do it. Amazing. And, and keep your soul intact. That's And keep your thing. soul and uh, yeah. be ethical about it. Yeah. Can you tell us where can people find you and tell us again the name of your book and where we can get? Sure. So the book, and thank you for that opportunity. That's, that's great. Um, the book's called The Hype Handbook. It is, you know, wherever books are sold primarily, I mean, the online sources are great. Amazon, the online Barnes and Noble site. It is in bookstores too. And I'm a fan. I think it hasn't arrived at the time of this recording in bookstores yet because of a slowdown, but it'll probably be there by the time this comes out. Um, but yeah, um, the hype handbook, uh, it's, it's in all those places and it would be my honor and pleasure for anyone to read it and tell me what they think if they get in touch with me. As for me, um, it's, I know that saying online places, it can get really lost. I'm assuming you'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, I mean, my website is michaelfshine.com, S-C-H-E-I-N, my author site. The company is microfamemedia.com. Uh, there's another there's something I really love doing. I have this thing called the Hype Book Club. So as I was researching this book, I noticed I was reading all of these unusual and interesting and entertaining books that weren't your typical seven habits of highly effective people, which is a good book, but it was everyone's read that. It, these are really unusual books that you can get a lot from. So I started giving out my recommendations to people and it, it kind of exploded. It's become a community. We trade ideas all the time. We trade messages. So if you want to sign up for that, it's hypereads.com slash list. Love it. We're going to put all those links below. Are you on Instagram or on Facebook? I am on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I have a big presence on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I do not use Instagram much. I don't like taking pictures. You know, I, I, yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. I Generation X, I guess. I, well, we're going to follow you in all of those places. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, this has been great. I had so much fun. Thank you. Hey there, this is Ina. Before I tell you how you can be interviewed on the podcast by me, right here, I have an important announcement. Our podcast is going on hiatus. This means we're going on vacation. We will be back in a few months with more irresistible interviews from the online world. And we will be kicking off the new season with you as the first episode. So if you have a great entrepreneurial story to tell, I want to talk to you and interview you right here on the podcast. If you're interested in learning more, for a limited time only, I am accepting applications to be interviewed on the podcast, and only one will be selected for the next season. To apply, go to theglobalphenomenon.com slash beourguest and go through the steps. I can't wait to read your application and share your story with the world. Also, make sure to hit that subscribe and follow buttons so you don't miss the next episode when it comes back. And to stay in touch with me while the podcast is offline, I can be seen on Instagram all the time. Just find me at 
Ina Coveney. But you have to spell Coveney right. It ends in E-Y. Have a great spring, everyone. And thank you so much for all your support in this first season. I have had so much fun recording these interviews for you. And I have loved seeing your feedback. So I can't wait to connect with you on Instagram. And I will see you when I interview you in the first episode of the next season. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Global Phenomenon with Ina Coveney. Join the conversation inside the Facebook group at theglobalphenomenon.com slash Facebook. Listen to new interviews every Monday and learn with a companion episode every Thursday. This podcast was created by Ina Coveney, music by Jared LaBelle, and this was the voice of Kip Clark.